So, as I was saying earlier, today we are going to be um, starting on maybe a three to four week uh, journey through um, many of the doctrines that we've been discussing uh, over the last year. So, we're going to be, if you were to look back through the like over the podcast of the lessons that we've looked at, we're literally rewinding back to January um, and starting to look at the doctrines that we kind of did in one long run through systematic theology. Now we're going back into his, into the historical theology side of things and, and trying to gain uh, an understanding of how the church has come to believe what it is that we teach today. Um, in particular, today we're going to be looking at um, election and reprobation. If you were here for the systematic section of this, this was um, we try to keep these systematics to one if possible. That one turned into like seven or eight. That's a, this is a meaty um, subject with much discussion to be had. Um, and as we kind of step over into the historical side of things, looking at how the churches historically looked at this, hopefully we can wrap it up in a single session. Um, to do that, it's going to mean that I'm probably going to be reading a lot, okay? Because there's a lot of information um, for us to get here. Um, so I do apologize for um, if it, it will feel much like I'm looking down and reading from a book today. Why? Because I am. Um, if, you, if you've not got the historical theology introduction to Christian doctrine from Greg Allison, I would recommend that you get it. I'm going to be reading much of what um, we look at today is coming out of that directly. There are going to be many just direct quotes from him here. I'm going to try to chain it together. Uh, in such a way that um, I can kind of preserve the context of, of the research that he's done in this area, um, but also get us through in a, in a single sitting. So um, it's going uh, it's going to be tough for me to get this done in this amount of time. A couple of things that I want us to look at and consider as we look at at election and reprobation and the church's understanding of this historically, the primary thing that I want us to draw away from this today is the idea that uh, there are certain doctrines within the church that have a long history of strong and vigorous debate. Okay? Um, election and reprobation is one of those. And we're going to find that from the very beginning of the church to today that you will find two classes, two groups of individuals um, within this debate. Now, these are kind of big categories here, but in general, there's kind of two sides to this. We assign to them a name today um, that essentially comes back to um, the most recent... Um, big voices in that area and no doubt there will probably be a day in the future where these ideas are known by different names because there will be time that passes by and different champions of different ideas and generations from now they will be known as something other than what we call it today because that's typically how good ideas happen as you know the last person that really said it well and 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 made some impact using that so um 
The two broad categories that we're going to look at today are going to be Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, why are they called those things? These are the names of people that championed these particular ideas in the not-so-distant past. Okay, But what we're going to see as we rewind all the way back to the beginning of the church is that the ideas that were championed by these individuals existed in some form up to the very beginning of the early church. So that's what I want us to see today. Um, And what that means, like what we ought to take away from that um, as a church today, knowing that there have been um, blood-bought, genuine believers, people that we will walk and talk with in eternity that fall on both sides of this debate, from the beginning to today, is that we ought to be more generous in the way that we consider the opposing views, right? This is an in-house debate. This is a debate between brothers and sisters, right? So we ought not look at this as something that it's like, if you're on this side, clearly you don't love Jesus, or if you're on this side, clearly you don't love Jesus. This is not the type of thing that we're looking at or should be looking at when we see this. What we ought to come to the conclusion when we look and see what we're going to see historically here today is that you can love Jesus fully and genuinely, completely. You will walk with Him and He will steer you from the Scriptures into the right direction in eternity no matter which side of this you fall on, right? So because of that, we should debate the truths of Scripture with passion, but also we should be um, generous in the way that we approach those who are on the other side of the debate debate here with us, right? Um, So with that being said, I'm going to kind of give a a, a general outline of these two two areas. and then we're going to, to kind of rewind. We're going to look at a couple of different sections and voices in these spans of history that kind of shaped the, the church's understanding of these views, right? So we're going to start with the early church. We're going to move on to the, middle, the church of the Middle Ages. We're going to then look at what happened at the Reformation because for us this was a pivotal time in church history because we are not Catholic here, right? We are part of the Protestant split, right? Like we stand in protest because of what happened at the Reformation. So like we're going to pay attention to that and then we're going to look at kind of modern time um, as being kind of the time that that evolved after the Reformation had kind of settled out, right? So um, that's where we're that's where we're going. Um, we are 24 minutes in uh, to this hour. <laughs> there will be bells ringing long before long before we get done. So um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kick this thing off. All right. So according to uh, the Reformed perspective, the Reformed or Calvinist perspective, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Calvinism specifies that God's choice of some for eternal life is unconditional, 
not based on any human merit or positive response of faith to the gospel as foreseen by God. Rather, election is according to God's sovereign will and good pleasure proposed before the creation of the world. This view is challenged by the Arminian or Wesleyan view of predestination. This perspective affirms divine election and specifies that such election is conditional. It is based on God's foreknowledge of a person's positive response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's start this discussion with the early believers and the early church. So the early church was the recipient of the scriptures of the Old Testament. So this is a fundamental place for us to start when we consider this. The nation of Israel uh, was predestined as the quintessential example of divine gracious election. You can look to Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verse 6 and 8. 6 through 8 here. Moreover, in this eschatological teaching, Jesus spoke of, or in his eschatological teaching, Jesus spoke of the elect. This, you can see this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, verse 24, 31. And the apostle Paul addressed Christians as those predestined and chosen by God. To see this, you can look at Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, verse, or chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. You can look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, 11 through 12, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 14. So what scripture makes clear is the language that has um, brought this debate to the forefront is clear in scripture. So we cannot say that, well, I just reject these ideas because scripture puts these ideas forward. So what we must do is we must have lively debate as to our understanding of these of these ideas. So uh, this happened within the early church. So as the early church considered these and other biblical passages, its development of a doctrine of predestination took place, and, and the historical context is really important for this as well. It took place in a historical and philosophical context that featured such notions as fatalism and absolute determinism. What does this mean? What is, does anybody have an idea of what fatalism is? Or what, uh, what's, um, what we see here as determination or determinism is? Do you have control over your ultimate outcome given those ideas? No. No. Ultimately, if we live in a world that is deterministic, then the starting conditions define the end. Right? Like physics works like this. Right? If you can know the starting conditions, you can predict the outcome of things in the physical world. Right? Science pushes us in this direction. However, if the base of reality is ultimately deterministic, then you have no free will. Your freedoms are Nothing more than um, a unfortunate illusion, right? That ultimately your feelings, your emotions, your desires, your passions are nothing more than inputs leading to outputs, right? 
Um, so this is the context which the early church found itself. It's, it's interesting because we find ourselves um, not so far from this same reality living in a world in which uh, many would kind of push that same, that same thing to the forefront. So it's not surprising then that the church placed a strong emphasis on human free will and self-determination. At the same time, it affirmed the sovereignty of God. While speaking like this, however, the early church generally associated divine predestination with God's foreknowledge of what would be or do. For example, Justin Martyr affirmed he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born, adding as well that the that the people foreknown to believe in him, that is to believe in Christ, were foreknown to pursue diligently the fear of the Lord. So if you're trying to align those views as we kind of look at these different people, I'm going to help you out here. Um, this would tend to fall, this type of view would tend to fall under the heading, heading that we call Arminianism. So was that type of view, was the, was the Arminian view alive in the early church? Most certainly it was. Uh, given this strong role for human freedom, the early church presented salvation in terms of a cooperative effort between God and human beings. Ignatius, an early church leader, put it simply, if you want to do well, God is ready to help you. Um, so along with the development of the church and the growth of the church came different teachers along the way. One teacher that came up that's particularly interesting is a man named Pelagius. Um, he was very much a champion of the will of man. And from this, um, there are views that, that, that he would teach that, um, that today we would tend to, to hold as uh, heresy or near heresy. So as people taught and the scriptures were um, made available and there was study, People came up with their ideas and their understandings about it, and other people had differing opinions, and what did they do? What did they do? What do we do? They debated. Okay, so Pelagius puts forward his ideas. Augustine was someone who was around during this time, and this, we oftentimes now see debate as something negative, right? Like, um, like if you look, well, you don't, but if you look at the culture around us, what typically happens is there's such a, like, you're either for me or against me, and there's no middle ground, right? And ultimately what happens when we find ourselves in a culture like that is, I think, cultural decline, because part of what makes a culture strong and grow is the ability to say, okay, Okay, let's come to the table here and let's have a debate about this. We believe that there is truth. I'm not so bold as to think that I know all truth, so let's talk about this and let's work our way together towards that truth. So Augustine, um, working in like fashion, um, came up with his understandings of the text and um, uh, there was lively debate between Augustine's view and Pelagius' view, so much so that we have church councils that form up around it to, to get to the bottom of these things, right? So Augustine defined predestination in close relationship with foreknowledge, saying the ordering of his future works 
in his foreknowledge, which cannot be deceived and changed, is absolute and nothing but predestination. So if we're going to classify Augustine's worldview in, in this is very general terms, right? Um, so we've got a couple, we've got one, two now that we've looked at that have fallen into the, what we would consider to be the Arminian side of this debate, and now we find Augustine, um, he would fall under a heading that, w- that if you were to be talking to him today, you would be like, Dude, you're a Calvinist, right? Like that's the that tends to be the direction that he was going. Now he probably wouldn't necessarily align himself as such. Um, he he may not find that label uh, beneficial. He'd be like, I came before this guy by a long shot, so you should be calling <laughs> Augustinianism instead. Um, so Augustine ultimately admitted, though, that predestination is largely mysterious and a cause for wonderment. Um, even even in his own writing uh, on the predestination of the saints, so you can go and you can go and look this up. Uh, Augustine acknowledged that certain people, though agreeing with him on many matters, parted company when it came to this issue, uh, particularly predestination itself. These Christians, who would later become known as semi-Pelagians, okay. So notice how we kind of we're using these names now um, kind of assigning to them this is a partic- this is to help us kind of uh, trace back the root of these ideas to certain individuals where we first kind of see these ideas popping up in history so remember Pelagius so we call it semi Pelagians um, in kind of reference to the the most recent source in human history where we where we find these ideas being spread um, so uh, it became, they became known as semi-Pelagians. They agreed with him about the fall of Adam, original sin, the necessity of salvation by grace, and so forth. Despite Augustine's hope that they would come to their senses concerning predestination, these semi-Pelagians continued to dissent from his specific formulation of that doctrine. So they had things that they agreed on, and then there was particularly in concerning predestination, things that they uh, disagreed with. Chief among the semi-Pelagian objection was that Augustine's view of predestination was um, an individual, uh, Faustus of Regium. I don't know that I got that. You did good. It's okay. (laughs) As long as Dustin says that, then we'll just believe it to be true. (laughs) Um, He called this idea a fantastic theory. Okay, he said God was seen in fantastic, not in not in a, a positive sense. Okay, he said God was seen as the one responsible for human sin, blamable for human evil, and accountable for human condemnation and misery. Faustus' solution was to invoke divine foreknowledge and permission and distinguish them from divine predestination. So I want to I want to read this again because I think this is important. We see these same type of ideas coming up um, even. Even today, as we debate these things, so understanding that it's happened um, throughout history, that this is an area where um, people on both sides, genuinely loving God, genuinely digging in through the Scripture, have come to different uh, places. It, it helps us to be more generous when we find others in debate uh, in these areas as well. No matter which side we fall on, so uh, Faust's solution, pay attention here, was to invoke divine foreknowledge and permission. 
So he distinguished these two uh, from just divine predestination itself. He said what God wills is one thing, what God permits is another. If you've ever been a part of this kind of de- this debate for long enough, you will have heard this type of this type of idea come up. What God wills is one thing, what he permits. So will and permission um, evolving here um, early early in the church's history, right? Therefore, he says, he wills the good, permits the evil, and foreknows both. He assigns righteous deeds, or he assists righteous deeds with his goodness. He permits unrighteous deeds in accordance with the freedom of the will, that is, the human will. Uh, Thus, while God certainly foreknows everything that comes to pass, predestination pertains only to what is good, while permission pertains to what is bad. For the good, God receives the credit and praise, but human beings are responsible for their own sin and blamable for human evil. They bring condemnation and misery upon themselves. In this way, semi-Pelagianism sought to establish the fatalism of Augustinian predestination, right? Ultimately pointing to, like, what's the use in you trying? Because ultimately you trying is, the, the, the view put forward was ultimately you trying is just a fatal effort if what Augustine is saying is true, right? Um, this is kind of, we see this come up in the idea that, um, that we would character those who would hold the Calvinist view as believing that, humans are just puppets right that's the same kind of the same kind of thing if you say that someone's a puppet then you're pointing towards a fatalistic view um, of of their outcome right so but there was another objection as well Um, according to Augustine God did not this is from the view of the person debating Augustine here right Um, God did not will all people to be saved So that's kind of the opposition to Augustine would say, look, the way that you look at this seems to be that God doesn't will all people to be saved. Rather, he chose the elect and them only for salvation. Against this notion, John Cassian complained, how can we imagine without grievous blasphemy that he, that is God, does not generally will all men, but only some instead of all to be saved? Those then who perish persist against his will. Cassian found Augustine's selective election in conflict with Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. But, Paul, but again, Augustine interpreted this message not as an affirming the divine will for the salvation of all people, but as expressing the necessity of the divine will for the salvation of any and all types of of people again, you see this kind of this kind of um, language that's we we hear this today as well. But Semi-Pelagians dec- decried this as a poor interpretation and emphasized God's desire that all people be saved. Now, um, I want to pause right here for a second, and I want to ask you, what does this debate sound like? Does it does it sound like Arminianism versus Calvinism? Take note that this is generations before they existed. Generations before they existed. Alright? So these ideas are not new to the reformers. 
These are things that have been being worked out through the history of the church. So keep that in mind, right? Um, that stage having been set for the Middle Ages in uh, 529, the church convened the Council of Orange to resolve the conflict between Augustinianism, Pelagianism, and semi-Pelagianism. Okay, so do you think that <laughs> it actually resolved the whole thing? <laughs> Um, no, it doesn't seem to be the case because we still debate over these issues today, right? Um, on many issues, the council sided with Augustinian theology and took a decided anti-Pelagian stance. However, on the doctrine of predestination, it was reluctant to embrace Augustinian theology. Indeed, the council distanced itself from what apparently had become the understanding of Augustine's doctrine of reprobation. So this is, uh, this is a quote here. We not only do not believe that any are foreordained to evil by the power of God, but even state with utter abhorrence that if there are those who want to believe so evil a thing, they are anathema. All right? So a lot of what a lot of what was coming out of Augustinian's kind of side of the house, they were like, we're good, but this one particular thing, at least the understanding that's held today in regards to it, despite whether or not that was exactly how Augustine would have viewed it, they're like, we don't, we don't hold this to be true. So much we're opposed to it, right? Um, so as the early church had done, the medieval church exchanged in discussions concerning predestination and human free will. In keeping with the scholastic emphasis of this time frame, uh, we've, we're going to find some new, some new people coming into the, the discussion here, Anselm being one of those. Anselm approached the matter from a philosophic, philosophical perspective in his work, and this is, this is uh, a work of his, the, combati the compatibility of God's foreknowledge, predestination, and grace with human freedom. So one thing that we can see that is happening, that has happened throughout the history of the church, it happens today, is that a new generation comes along, there are ideas that are passed along, that generation takes those ideas, considers them, and in some ways it, it, it may morph in, in a positive or a negative, but, in, but, but they take it, they ingest it, and they deal with it themselves, Right? They address it. They have their own thoughts and views, right? That are shaped by the culture in which they find themselves. They are working towards what? Like if we're generous to their perspective, we're generous to them, that God has called them as he has called us, then what do we believe about them? Are they seeking after him faithfully? In doing so, what must they do? They deal with the scriptures, and generation after generation, and we can see Anselm doing it here. Um, he's, he's spending much time in this regard. As Anselm concluded, so this is kind of a conclusion of, of his, predestination does not exclude free choice, and free choice is not opposed to predestination. Another individual comes along during this period of time. His name is Thomas Aquinas. He joined um, biblical support with philosophical reasoning um, in his effort or in his affirmation of predestination, which he considered to fall under the general category of providence. Uh, citing Ephesians chapter 1, 
verse 4, Aquinas closely associated love with God's election of people according to God's foreknowledge of people's faith and good works um, is ruled out as the basis for divine election. Appealing to Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he reasoned as he, that is, as God, saved us, so he predestined that we should be saved. Therefore, foreknowledge of merits is not the cause or reason of predestination. This is coming from Aquinas here. Uh, oh, excuse me. Is not the cause or reason of predestination with this. Aquinas specifically dissented from others before him. Origen, uh, Pelagius, who held to a doctrine of predestination based on divine foreknowledge of human, of human merit. Okay? Uh, Aquinas made a distinction between the decree of predestination and the actualization of that decree. This is, um, uh, I would have to, it would take, several lessons um, for us to really dig into this. Uh, Aquinas was a uh, a very deep thinker. Um, so I'm going to leave, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of put out here the, these thoughts here, but this, pay attention to the idea of um, a decree of predestination and actualization. That actualization here, just take it to, uh, you can understand it to mean bringing it bringing it about, right? The means by which something is brought about. This could also be um, known as secondary means or secondary causes would be another way to understand this. Um, when, when, when I said um, that, that this age of the church brought in philosophical views, like Aquinas is one of those guys. He was an extremely deep thinker and um, added a lot added a lot to the discussion and understanding of, of this topic in particular. So uh, he applied the distinction to the question whether predestination can be furthered by prayers of the saints. Okay, so this is another thing. Like if like if the Calvinist view is true, then there are a lot of things that like are we lead into this fatalistic understanding of, one of which would be, why then would I pray for the lost? Why then would we do missions, right? These are questions that are thrown at that side of the house. Because if, if what you're saying is true, and generation after generation have gone in this direction, if what you're saying is true, um, then what do my prayers do to change anything there, right? So this is where, like, in, in his kind of playing out of this, the secondary means... Um, he, he really does a good job of like adding to the conversation in, in regards to this. So um, considering this question, particularly whether predestination can be furthered, that is, like, could a person be saved because you pray, right? Now, he would say, no, it's not primarily as a first cause because you pray, but your prayer is a mechanism by which God works out his first cause, right? So this is kind of the, the idea that he that he presents here. Considering the question as it regards the decree itself, Aquinas firmly denied that predestination be furthered by the prayers of the saints. For it is not due to their prayers that anyone is predestined by God, right? Like he would see that predestinating action as preceding any prayers, right? But then he continues, 
considering the question as it regards the actualization of the decree, he affirmed that predestination is aided by prayer, saying, because providence, of which predestination is a part, does not do away with secondary causes, but so provides effects that the order of secondary causes fall under providence. So the salvation of a person is predestined by God in such a way that whatever helps that person towards salvation falls under the order of predestination. Thus, in the actualization of salvation, human efforts like prayer are the means appointed by God to help the elect move forward toward the salvation to which God predestined them. See what time we're working at. We got 11 minutes, so we're we're stepping now from uh, the Middle Ages uh, into the Reformation. So there's a lot going to be um, in this. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to make it as as brief as possible. Um, so now Augustinian views had taken hold. There were Augustinian monks. One of those monks' name was Martin Luther. Um, you, if you are a part of the Protestant Church and you don't know who Martin Luther is, shame on you because like this guy's one of the guys that kind of kicked this whole thing off. So he was under the Augustinian view, right? Martin Luther adopted much of his mentor's doctrine of predestination. Uh, Luther was aware of how distressed people are concerning whether they are elect or not. Again, this is something that we find ourselves when we discuss this. Well, well am I one of them, or is my family going to be one of them? Like, it seems like we want to have control over it, even though we we tend to waste all our energies on like frivolous things. But nonetheless, we think if we're the one driving, we're safe. Right, but if we're in the hands of a pilot, we're not safe. Like we 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 tend to have that view. Though we will wreck cars left and right, we still think that we're the safer one to drive. Right. Um, so Luther, understanding this, that that people have this concern about whether or not they're elect, um, he kind of dealt with this dealt with this idea. And I I think pay close attention to what he what he says here. I think he does a, a really good job at kind of putting forward. Um, some some really good thoughts here. So in in regards to this question, like whether or not I f- find myself amongst the elect or family might find themselves some amongst, I think Martin Luther does a really good job here. Again, consider what he's saying. He predates he predate in in his contribution here predates Calvin's contribution here. So. Um, so accordingly, he tried to guide people in how to think about their elections so it becomes a comfort to them pointing people to the gospel, saying, if you follow this advice, if you first recognize that you are a child of wrath by nature, guilty of eternal death and damnation from which no creature, either man or angel, is able to save you. And if you then grasp God's promise, believing that He has sent Christ, His only Son, to render satisfaction for your sin, to give you His innocence and righteousness, and finally redeem you from all danger and death, then do not doubt that you belong to the little flock of the elect. Okay? What is he saying when he says this statement? The fact that you concern yourself so deeply with these things points you in a direction of where you find yourself falling. 
right? Is that those who are not tend not to concern themselves with such eternal matters, right? And what he's saying here is if you consider the depths of your own depravity, the depths of your own sin, if you consider that no man can save you from the hand of God himself, and if it is his wrath that pours out, and that yet this God has put forward hope for us, if you consider these things deeply, this should be a comfort to you. Because what does Scripture tell us? What does Romans say? Who seeks God? No one. So if you find yourself seeking, this ought to draw comfort. Not fear of whether or not you are, but comfort that there is something working in you that causes you to concern yourself with heavenly ideas. Right? That's what he's putting forward here. Thus, the antidote for both foolish speculation about the doctrine of predestination and distressful concern about one's own predestination is paying careful attention to and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Right? Like he's, This ought to point us deeper into Scripture. This is the idea that he kind of puts forward here. More than any other... Um, so now we're going to get into the namesakes of these two views today right this is where calvin comes into the picture and then after him um we find the the namesake of of the next side of the house so more than any other reformation leader john calvin is associated with the doctrine of predestination the idea of the centrality and dominance of god's predestining work in the theology of calvin has become part and parcel of the common portrayal of his position as calvin put it simply predestination is that by which god adopts some for hope of life and sentences others to eternal death and more in a more developed definition he explained his thought saying we call predestination god's eternal decree by which he compacted within himself what he willed to become of each person. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. Therefore, as any man has been created to one or the other of these ends, we speak of him as being predestined to life or death. For Calvin... Predestination is not based on God's foreknowledge of human worth or unworthiness. So predestination is not based on people's faith or lack thereof, good or evil deeds or any other kind of human merit or demerit. God does not elect certain people because he foreknows what kind of people they will turn out to be. God does not pass over others for the same reason. Calvin anticipated and responded to possible objections to his doctrine of predestination. Moreover, he raised the issue of how to treat this matter practically, urging that two errors should be avoided. The first error is careless speculation about predestination. For Calvin, it must be acknowledged that predestination is a great mystery, and God has wisely decided to reveal some things, but not all things about it. Thus, one safeguard that Calvin enjoined to people was to avoid foolish speculation about election, meaning that they are safe only when they restrict their study of predestination to God's revelation in the Bible. So what does Calvin... Martin Luther, 
What are, what are all of these people ultimately pointing people to when they're trying to, to give them this understanding? Ultimately, they're trying to point them uh, back to the scriptures. Um, study for yourself. I don't think that there's anyone that we've mentioned this morning um, who would be like, no, don't study for yourself. Just take it on face value of what I say. All of these, all of these individuals would point you yourself to spending time um, in scripture. So, Using an oxymoron, Calvin urged, let us not be ashamed to be ignorant of something in this matter in which there is a certain learned ignorance. Rather, let us willingly refrain from inquiring into a kind of knowledge the adherent desire for which is both foolish and dangerous, indeed, even deadly. So Calvin putting forward these warnings about, like, don't think that you know it all, right? And what would we tend to assign um, as far as personality traits to someone like Calvin? We would tend to, to assign to that view and oftentimes to people who would hold that view um, this know-it-all type of mentality and Calvin here putting forward himself like like be comfortable not knowing everything in this regard there are some great mysteries here right so the second error is avoiding saying anything about the matter okay so this is a second position one don't think that you know it all two because it is a difficult subject matter there is a tendency to be like well I'm not going to say anything about this at all Right? And he warns against that as well. So Calvin recognized that for many reasons, people refuse to deal with predestination, pointing to his above guideline, follow the contours of the biblical re- uh, revelation, he urged, those who prefer to be silent, not to withhold God's truth for others, uh, from others. So this is, this is from him here. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which is nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know. So nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in the Scriptures. Otherwise, we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff the Holy Spirit for having published what is in a way profitable to suppress right like this is he has a very high view here of scripture and points people points people who would teach scripture uh, not to avoid this subject um, but also to take it with the weight that that it is there indeed calvin highlights the benefits of under of understanding this doctrine it magnifies the grace of god encourages humility on the part of believer believers and grounds confident hope Finally, he emphasized that election is to be understood and recognized in Christ alone. Now, 50 years after Calvin, the Reformed theologian Jacob Arminius, this is where we get Arminianism, the the name here, objected to the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. So a pattern that we see from the early church, uh, even up to the church of today, is like this vigorous debate amongst the ideas that we find here. This is is a good thing. We should embrace this, right? Uh, While affirming election, Arminius claimed that it is based on God's foreknowledge. Again, he's not the first guy to say this. He's just the one that we happen to to call this um, train of thinking by today, right? So specifically, Arminius rejected several forms of Calvinist predestinarian doctrine with regard to the order of salvation. 
Arminius, and we're, we're wrapping this thing up right now. Arminius articulated his own understanding of the doctrine under four headings. The first addressed God's purpose to save people through Jesus Christ. The second addressed election and reprobation. God decreed to receive in favor those who uh, repent and believe in Christ for his sake and through him. To effect the salvation for such penitents as, and believers as preserved to the end. But to leave in sin and under wrath all in in <laughs> impenitent <laughs> sorry for that um, persons and unbelievers and to damn them as aliens from Christ the third uh, he addressed the means uh, of affecting the first two decrees the fourth addressed the divine foreknowledge concerning which specific individuals would be chosen or not for salvation this decree has its foundation in the knowledge of God by which he knew from all eternity those individuals who would through the prevenient grace believe and through subsequent grace would preserve this view these views that are put forward here in the reformation we find them um, taught amongst us uh, in our modern church today, um, we're going to kind of st- we're going to stop there. The one thing that I want to leave you with, um, having considered from the beginning of the church to today, um, that this has been an area where true believers on both sides have found themselves um, debating uh, for the truth of Scripture and also for what they believe to be um, a God-glorifying view of him that they see in it. We should therefore be careful when we cast harsh judgments against other true believers who may have a different view from our own uh, concerning God's work in predestination. We should not avoid this subject when it comes to teaching and preaching, and we should at the same time hold with the same type of reverence that, that those who have come before us have held the reality that we do not know everything. We are not uh, all-knowing and should approach this subject with all humility knowing that ultimately one day uh, Christ himself will teach us the truths. And I don't think that there will be anyone on either side of this uh, who will be sitting there on that day um, not taking notes because they knew it all uh, on this side. So we'll end with that um, before we're too late getting into the sanctuary.